This morning, I want to start, Lord willing, a series on the book of 1 Corinthians. It's one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament. It comes right after the letter to the Roman church and right before 2 Corinthians, handily. Funny how that worked out. But um, I want to, by God's grace, it's just on my heart to spend some time working through this book. And I want to call the entire series Heaven on Earth. Because I want to say the truth to us repeatedly that the church is heaven on earth. Jesus' church is heaven on earth. Now, I know right now that those words are running up against some of our experiences. And it's making a crunching sound like a, a car hitting a tractor trailer at 100 miles an hour. But the reality is, that Jesus' church is heaven on earth. And hopefully we'll all become convinced about how that works and what that means for us over time. One little segue before I get started here, or not segue, but one little note. I know that when we don't have children's ministry, that is quite a pressure on all of us. And I, I, I believe that our little kids are part of the church. And so my plan is, if we don't have children's ministry, I kind of want to try out this interesting thing. I would love to put a 20-minute timer on the screen, and that's all I got. <laughs> Amen? So if you're a little bit intimidated, you're like, Rob's pushing an hour most times, and my kids are all under five, we're going to do 20 minutes. Okay? So if you can bring enough video games and high-sugar treats to get your kids through 20 minutes, then I'll do my part. Amen? So... So you're welcome to be here, and I'll do my part to love on everybody at every age of maturity possible. All right. I want to do something. I want to read this passage before each one of our messages. This isn't my passage for this morning, but this is my passage for this entire series. It's from 1 Corinthians 13, and I want us to get used to hearing this. So as you're able, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8 together from the ESV. If you want to read it out loud with me, I would love that, especially in the first few rows so I can at least hear some people doing it. But if you just want to listen along, you're welcome to do that as well. I'm going to count down from three, and then we're going to read this. Three, two, one. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Sorry, (laughs) different translation. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Amen. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. And Father, the fact that your word is reality. 
Father, there's so much we could never know about you if you didn't talk, but you do speak. So God, I pray that your word would do its work today as we're together, and I pray you'd help me to be a true servant of your word and to love your church well. And I pray that you would do the miracle again today, Lord, that you would make uh, needy people and sinners like us really understand who you are and respond with faith. And Lord, I pray that you would fulfill everything that Jesus deserves because of his death and resurrection in our midst at Calvary Chapel. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, during our vacation, I, I felt like we were on vacation for a couple of weeks in July, and I thought it was my favorite time off ever, which was great. Um, I don't know if everyone would agree with me, but I, I thought so. Um, and one of the things was we went back to visit my mom, who lives in Vernon, B.C., and I have never noticed how beautiful that city is before. And one of the things we did, we rented a van, and, and pretty much every direction you head in, you have to drive up or down a, a mountain. And so we went up this drive up a mountain, and it's all these windy roads. It's not like um, Manitoba, where you can just tie the steering wheel to the stick shift and just go to sleep because it never turns. It's all winding roads all the time. And so we're going up and down mountains, and every, every minute you have a different, amazing view in this city where there's three lakes that all come together in this one city in like four different mountain ranges that have valleys that come together. And, and so you can see like storms come down the valleys and you can see the sun off the, the, the lakes. And it, I just found it amazing. And because I was driving, I wasn't nauseous like everybody else who was <laughs> dealing with me not watching the road while I was going down all these winding roads up the mountains. Amen, Belfort? Like even the people in the front seat were asking me to do a better job. <laughs> so it's just beautiful. And, and not just that it was nice to look at, which is great, but the, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I realize that the beauty of creation is my God's glory. And so what I couldn't do before I got saved is I get to say, you're amazing, Father, every time I see something good, it's totally personal. It's totally relational. Father, you're amazing. How did you do that? That's amazing. How did you do that? So, so good. And uh, another couple of things that just made it such a good time was that, you know, when you, when you have five kids, and some people feel this stronger than I do, who have five kids, but all you need to have a good vacation is somebody else make dinner. Am I right? I see some head nods there. And then if somebody else is also doing the dishes, it's already heaven on earth. Right? And so I was just thinking about that phrase, heaven on earth. And when do we usually say that? We usually say that when things are going really well, right? A good dinner that I didn't make and I'm not cleaning up after with a beautiful view, heaven on earth. Amen? Like what is heaven on earth for you? Somewhere warm in the winter, in a long beach. Something like that, anybody? See, some people are going hot places in the summer. You're doing it wrong, but we'll, we'll try to work this out, maybe. It's going to get a heat stroke. But um, <laughs> we tend to say, this is heaven on earth when things are comfortable and pleasurable and not stressful. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. 
But when you're a Christian who reads the Bible, what is heaven on earth actually? Well, Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, say this, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven on earth is actually the warfare of God invading a broken world and making his will done so that people will honor him and glorify him. That's really heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is war. Heaven on earth is a mess. Heaven on earth is craziness. Heaven on earth is church, which can awfully feel like an awful war sometimes and a big mess and a lot of craziness. So this is why I'm, I'm looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, because if you know anything about it, the Corinthian church is one of the most messed up churches that has ever existed. And this is kind of what it was like. I, I really appreciated last Sunday, Jackie and I snuck in here. One of our rules of thumb as staff is that if you're on vacation, don't come to Calvary because then you end up working. And it did happen, you know. We tried to snuck, sneak in here. I was all incognito. I was wearing a T-shirt and not a collared shirt for like the second time in my entire life at Calvary. And I had my running shoes on and I decided that I enjoyed it so much that I'm going to just keep wearing running shoes. I'm pretty convinced that if Jesus were on the earth, he'd be wearing running shoes because he walked everywhere, you know what I'm talking about? So he wouldn't be wearing those painful dress shoes. Anyhow, that's just the pet theology. I'm not saying it's true. But uh, we, were, we were just in here, and I was, we were kind of sitting in the back of the middle, and I just, just enjoyed being part of the crowd and almost being like a newcomer because stuff had happened that I didn't know about and and I enjoyed it. And so I'd just been thinking of a way to help us try to understand what it would have been like to be at a Corinthian church from the idea of going to visit a church you've never been to before. And it would be like this, okay? Imagine you go to a church and you're checking it out and you're sitting in the middle and you're just watching what's going on and you're kind of scoping out what's going on. And, and um, the singing is okay, except for that part during the middle of the singing where the guys stumbled out of the kitchen emptying the last bottle of communion wine, <laughs> falling all over the front few rows, lushed out, telling everybody how much they love them. Okay, that was, you say, that's a little bit awkward. <laughs> and then the singing stopped, and then the announcements happened, and first the, 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 uh, a group comes up and they're just saying, we just want to thank everybody for contributing to, um, Philip and, and Mary's um, uh, celebration party. You know, um, Mary is Philip's stepmom, we know, but they have such a pro- profound love for each other that's kind of turned romantic. And, and we don't want to, like, tell anybody that there's anything wrong with that kind, because love is love. And so, you know, thanks for contributing towards the celebration of their love as, as uh, we just celebrated um, the coming together of Mother's Day and Valentine's Day in a whole new way. And that was happening at the Corinthian church. And you're kind of creeped out, but maybe hoping that, hoping that one of the pastors is going to take these people aside and sort it out. When another guy gets up here and he says, okay, so our, uh, our books and babe Bible studies happening tonight after church today. We're going to all meet at Steve's house and we're going to study the Song of Songs and then we're going to drive into the city and go to Happy Larry's Honey Farm and, and go and do some outreach and lay hands on some of the, the go-go girls working there and and just appreciate God's creation. 
because there was a group of guys in Corinth who actually had a theology of using prostitutes as Christians. That was happening there. And then you've kind of made it through. The message was okay, um, except for when, when the message started, then one guy off on your left just stood up and, and said, and then sat down. And you heard somebody behind you say, oh, I can't believe that. that that Dave guy just did that showing off again. I'll show him. And then the guy behind you stood up and just said, and then some other people got up during the message. It was right during the third point, which is supposed to be the good one. And they all just said, and people were just speaking in tongues randomly, out loud, during the time together, like a madhouse. Because that was happening in this church. And then in between the people doing that, some of the prophetic people got fired up and one person was standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord, this church is a mess. And then they sat down and other people started getting up and they said, Thus saith the Lord, that was not me. And then they sat down. And then that first person got up and they said, Thus saith the Lord, that was to me. And then they sit down. And then everybody starts getting up and says, Thus saith the Lord, you guys always saying, Thus saith the Lord, but it's not thus saith the Lord. And then all the prophetic people were just yelling over top of each other. Because that was happening in the Corinthian church. And then as soon as they've done the every eye closed and every head bowed and prayed and you're trying to beeline out of here in the foyer, you run into two guys punching each other and saying, you so-and-so, you owe me that 50 bucks, you're going to be hearing from my lawyer. I'm going to take you for everything you're worth. And God bless you. Because that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. And in the meantime, right when you're in the parking lot, someone comes up to you and says, we know this place is a mess. It's all the leadership's fault. But don't worry. We're going to get rid of him. Why don't you come to our, our club here and we're going to find a way to get this guy to be the new pastor and get rid of those guys. Because that was happening in the Corinthian church. And the thing that amazes me is that I think if any one of us had this kind of church experience, checking out a new church, we would say two things. Number one, these people are not Christians. And number two, I'm never coming back. Am I right? We would just say, these people are not <laughs> Christians, and I am never coming back. Right? Are you with me? Okay. Where's your phone? <laughs> this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, who is writing by the Holy Spirit the very words of God to this church. And Paul knows, he's, he's in another city at this time, and he's heard about all this stuff from faithful witnesses, and he writes them a letter to love them, lead them and straighten them out and remind them that the church of Christ is heaven on earth and they have absolutely forgotten that and are living like mere human beings who don't know God. But he starts his letter like this, okay? This is verse 4. We might look at it again. 
Actually, can we go to the last slide? Is somebody there? I think I might be able to get it. Forgive me. One more. There we go. This is what Paul says. So just, I've told you the context, okay? They've had a party to celebrate a guy having a romantic relationship with his stepmom. There's community groups that use prostitutes. There's lawsuits that are public and known. And when they get together for communion, half of them get blitzed out of their mind before some of them even arrive to participate. And there's even more than that going on. And this is how Paul writes to them. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, he's already stretched most of our willingness to believe. To those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ And this is where I just love Paul and the Spirit of God and the love of God and the patience of God. He says, I give thanks to God always for you. Okay, right now he's totally different than almost anybody I know. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the leader that people are trying to get rid of in Corinth. And this is his church. He, he led most of them to the Lord. And it's gone so bad. And his heart for them and his love for them is, I give thanks to you always. I'm so grateful for the grace of God towards you in Jesus Christ. I know that God is capable of presenting you guiltless before him at the end. And I know that God is faithful the one who called you into fellowship with Christ. What amazing patience and love for the church of God. Amen? I'm, I'm astounded. I haven't been able to get over this all week. I'm just like, how did he do this? And my desire is that, that going through this book, we would actually be able to come like Paul's and we would be able to love the church of Jesus. Really love the church of Jesus. Like this. Amen? It's crazy. Because literally, if you were a part of a church like this, we would just say, these people are not Christians and I'm out of here. And Paul says, you are Christians and I'm coming to be your dad and love you and lead you to the Lord and deal with what needs to get dealt with until you're everything you're supposed to be in Jesus. Amen? Amen? This is amazing. Don't you love the Bible? I love the Bible. I love me the Bible. The Bible is a miracle. Anybody who actually reads it and goes, this was real people writing, you've got to say, this is a miracle. Nobody talks like this. Nobody talks like this. Nobody talks like this. Nobody talks like this. All right. So now I want to start this message over again. 
And I want to look at where the Corinthian church went wrong because it's exactly where we tend to go wrong as well. And so I want to give us a bit of a history lesson that will help us understand our culture and why it's so rare, if it ever happens, that people would love the church this much. That even if the church hated your guts because you didn't approve of them sleeping with their stepmom, you would still have faith for them in Jesus Christ and be willing to suffer for their good. Okay, I want to end up there, but in order for us to understand that, we need to know something about our culture right now. Okay, you willing to go with me? So if this sounds really strange, it is, and I'm sorry, but it's really important. We need to talk about this thing called existentialism. Can we go back one slide? Now, it is a philosophy, and so philosophers need to let everybody know how important and intellectual they are so they cannot make short words. They just are terrible at it, and it's probably a pride thing. But So I'm going to rename existentialism as me-ism or idolatry, okay? And where it comes from is around the 1930s, there is this really great big wave of atheism hitting Europe again. So the belief that there is no God. It's just whatever you see is all there is, and there is no God. And one of the things that happens is that if you take seriously the idea that there is no God, you really do lose all, all source of meaning or purpose or right and wrong in the world. We're just chemicals. We're just carbon and hydrogen and oxygen with a little electric current running in between our ears. We were here by accident and will be gone by accident, but it doesn't mean anything. When we're all dead, we're dead, and it just goes back to energy. Equals MC squared. We're all just the laws of physics working itself out. There is no personal being that says, you mean something, you have a purpose, you have a destiny, and you do things wrong, and you can do things right. It doesn't exist. You're meaningless. Because as soon as you're dead, you're gone. And even life, what is that? What is it? It's just a chemical reaction. Your life and the little bubbles that come out of a can of pop when you crack it open, there is zero difference. It's just a chemical reaction. If there is no God in heaven, who is the reality, and says, no, that's not the truth. You're a human being made in my image, and you are important. So important that if you reject me, you will live forever in that rejection, but if you come to me through my son, you will live forever in heaven, in bliss, because everything matters. And that sense that you have that there is right and wrong in the world when someone does something wrong to you and you're mad about it, that's real. And the desire to be good and experience, that's real. It's not just chemicals, okay? So if, it's, if there is no God, we're just chemicals, which is really depressing. Anybody? Wake up in the morning, I don't mean anything. If I died in my sleep, the world would not be any different. You ever see a meme with that on it? A little cat poster hanging from the wire? I'm just chemicals. 
So, in response to this, the thinkers got together and they wanted to hold on to what they thought was the reality that there is no God and there is no actual meaning in the universe there for you. And such thinkers as this guy named Jean-Paul Sartre, who was one of the main guys, came up with this idea called existentialism. And what the, one, of, one of the points was, if there's going to be any meaning in your life, you have to decide what it is. What does it mean to be human? You decide. What is the meaning of life? Well, you decide. There's no God telling you, so you get to decide. You have to decide, and you get to decide. Well, what's right and wrong? Well, there is no God in heaven saying, this is right and this is wrong. You have to decide. That's existentialism, what I'm calling me-ism, or idolatry, because essentially what it says is, your existence is all about you. You decide who you are, you decide what you are, you decide what's right and wrong, you decide how you're going to live, you decide how you're going to die. It's all about you. It's your choice. And this idea was, is super popular. Can you guess why? Because you get to do whatever you want to do. And if it's right for me, it's right for me. And you can't judge me because you're just a bag of chemicals. And I want to do this. So it became really popular, okay? And these kinds of ideas were disseminated throughout our entire culture, through the universities, who train the teachers, who train the kids in school, but particularly in places like Hollywood, where important people like producers and directors don't mind being able to uh, not have any rules controlling how they treat their actresses and stuff like that. This idea that there is no God... There is no meaning, there is no right and wrong, but you get to decide for you. You get to be God of your life in every way. And so as I was thinking about this, you know, somebody in our house was singing this song, and it's a catchy song, and I don't blame them about it, but I was wondering about the words a little bit, and so I went and Googled what the words were for this song, and it's a song called Rewrite the Stars. Anybody heard of this before from The Greatest Showman? This movie was super popular. Last year, I think it was, um, it's like this epic battle between Wolverine and uh, Freak Show or something like that. I'm not sure exactly. It's the X-Men, but with cheerfulness. I'm not sure. And, uh, but anyhow, just listening to the songs and how it went. And, and I'm just trying to, I'm going to grab one thing from our culture. And I just want to point out that these ideas are so pervasive. They are everywhere, including us. This idea that we decide. Okay, so there, apparently there's this one romantic scene where some rich stud muffin and some showgirl are deciding that they're in love and he really wants to... Um, things. So they're singing this song and, and here are the words. It goes like this. What if we rewrite the stars? Say you were made to be mine. Nothing could keep us apart. You'd be the one I was meant to find. It's up to you and it's up to me. No one can say what we get to be, so why don't we rewrite the stars? Maybe the world could be ours tonight. Take off your clothes. Sorry, I added in that last one, but that's what he's actually gearing toward. Do you remember that? Do you want me to sing it for you? What if we rewrite the stars? Say you were made to mine. See, it's now all of a sudden you love it. Nothing could keep us apart. I think you have to move. You be the one I was meant to find. It's up to you and it's up to me. 
There's another song I might sing that one too. No one could say what we get to be. Jean-Paul Sartre. Do you hear, hear the ideas? Rewriting the stars, what's that about? We will climb into heaven and we will remake the rules the way we want them to be. We'll rewrite the stars, we'll rewrite our destiny, we'll rewrite our fate. And this is this line, no one gets to say what we get to be. Right? Anybody hear that? Follow your heart, don't let anybody hold you back. Shut up all you haters. It's, it, it, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but it's, it's tragic how often these kinds of ideas end up with young girls being bedded by people who don't want to make a covenant with them. Even the one that's really peppy and the super famous one, the, the um, This Is Me song, anybody like that one? No, you don't like that one? Why not? Because it's just raw existentialism. It's just me-ism and idolatry. Okay, so nobody likes the idea of a bearded lady getting made fun of, really. And it's kind of nice for her not to be depressed. But at the same time, if she's running around with her troop and they're all singing this song, when the sharpest word's going to cut me down, I'm going to send a flood, going to drown him out. Who gets to send floods? Isn't that what God does? Okay, but I'm, this is me, I get to send floods now. I am brave, I am proved, I'm the one I'm meant to be, this is me. Right? And it goes on from there, which is okay. But then when I hear songs like this, I was just, my mind just goes, who gets to sing this song? The, this is me and I'm not going to apologize for it. Like, do terrorists get to? I'm going to steal your kids and make them a slave. I'm going to kill everyone who thinks Jesus saves. And in my paradise, it is full of constantly virgin brides. This is me. Does Hitler get to say, this is me? Does Joseph Stalin get to sing, this is me and I don't apologize? Do those two young kids who killed those people in Alaska and are hiding out in Winnipeg, do they get to walk around going, I don't have to apologize for murder, if that's what happened? Who decides who gets to sing, this is me? Well, me. There's a real problem with existentialism. Number one, it's, it's insane. Because if it's true, there is no God and there is no meaning. You and I running around thinking, I make up my own meaning. It's just believing lies. It's not the reality. If it's true, there is no meaning. There's no meaning. Why pretend? So if you live like that, make up your own rules, decide what, who you are, decide your identity, we're actually training all of us to lie to ourselves. It's unsound. It's crazy making. It's also super lonely. If you take 7 billion people and you tell them that each one of them is the lead actor in their own movie, then what do we do? We go around and everybody else is supposed to be the, um, the supporting actor in the Hallmark movie for us, right? I'm the one who's going to win the prize and get the girl, and you're supposed to be the cheerful friend who comes along and just tells me I'm wonderful and help me along. But my cheerful friend also thinks that they're Iron Man, and I'm supposed to be Ant-Man. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but then the other guy thinks, he's in his own movie, and he thinks, I'm Aragorn, and you're just supposed to be Gimli. 
You're my comic relief. But Gimli's there thinking, no, I'm supposed to be Thor, and you're supposed to be like Jokey Hulk, like from Ragnarok. You lost it? Okay, no. I'm Elsa. I'm Moana. You can be the chicken. Right? Because you're klutzy. I like you. Do you hear what I'm talking about here? And the problem is that nobody wants to be your chicken. So you can be Moana. Because they want to be Moana too. And so we end up very, very lonely. Wrapped up in these worlds where we have this long list of how we expected everything to go. And nobody's playing along. And we're also really offended. Because we're, we're told we're supposed to invent this vision of ourselves and our existence. And then go out and make it happen. Guess what? We don't have the power to make it happen. You don't have the power to make yourself have the childhood you wanted. You don't have the power to make yourself have the relationship with your parents, your kids you wanted. You don't have the power to give yourself the health you want. You don't have the power to make everyone love you. You don't have the power to make everyone approve of you. You don't have the power to make everyone validate you. You don't have the power to make everybody accept you. You don't have the power to make everybody celebrate you. But we go around telling each other, in this world, everybody should accept you, validate, affirm, and celebrate you. And if they won't do it, kill them. Or at least get a human rights violation attack on them somehow. So we're really offended people because people aren't participating with my plan to be the center of my universe. Like they told me in The Greatest Showman is supposed to happen. I'm supposed to sing and dance and shake a leg and then everyone's supposed to clap while I slow-mo walk through the dancers. It's not working. And then you go around going, you're ruining my life to everyone around you. Amen? Okay, so welcome to history. And this has produced all these movements in our culture. The feminist movement is, is that because the most recent feminist movement was really started by Jean-Paul Sartre's live-in girlfriend or lover or whatever. They never got married. Simone de Beauvoir, I think, was her name. The idea being that no man gets to tell a woman who she is. Right? That's the idea. No one gets to tell a woman who she is. She gets to decide for herself. It's the same idea. Nobody gets to tell a woman what to do with her body, and she can abort whatever she needs to. Nobody can tell any uh, groups of people what kind of sex they can have with whoever because they get to decide what's right and wrong there. Nobody gets to tell anybody when they should die because I get to choose what I get to do with my body. Nobody can tell anybody what it means to be a woman or to be a man because we're each defining these things on our own, and your job is to affirm, validate, accept, and celebrate. And these waves of next levels of me meism keep happening and it seems to me like the the next boundaries and we're going to have to deal with this as a church the next boundaries we're going to accept polygamy again i saw a news article that the american pharmacopsychiatric association i think it was the apa is now pushing to remove the stigma from what they call polyamory it's polygamy but without the amigi which is the marriage part so just um we're going to have people joining the church sometime if I'm here or not, who have four wives, and what are we going to do with that? And the other boundary is um, 
with um, sexual activities for minors, okay? So if people get to define their own life, who are you to tell an eight-year-old they can't have sex with a 30-year-old? But there's no rule. It's just oppressive people's opinions trying to control other people. These are the boundaries. And existentialism and meism is accepted. There is no end to what people will want to do. And we have to affirm and validate and accept and celebrate. Not in the church we don't. Because this is where heaven lives. Where God rules. Anyhow, but meism does get into the church. How does it happen? Maybe you could guess. So you get saved. You become a Christian. But you don't start to deal with those core ideas of what you want out of life. And so now Jesus comes into your life, and now it's his job to fulfill our dreams and goals and desires of how we had things planned. Amen? And on a good day, when Jesus seems to be helping me become the person I want to be, I lost that five pounds, then good job, Jesus. But if not, where are we on that one, Lord? And the church's job, guess what the church's job to do? When you're a Christian stuck in meism, the church's job is to make you feel better, to help you feel like you're achieving your goals and fulfilling your dreams. And the reason I'm talking about this is because this is our problem, and this is the Corinthian church's problem. They came to church and wanted everybody to be who they wanted to be so they could get whatever they wanted, and it was tearing the church apart. Oh man, I'm depressed already. Can we just preach the gospel for a little bit? This is the reality. Before anybody was ever here, there was a God. This God was so gigantic that he is actually three persons in one. He is a father overflowing with love and authority and command and goodness. And he is so full that he is, produces his own son. I don't know how this happens. It's a mystery. You won't get it. And this son is so perfect in the knowledge and representation of God that he is God himself, the exact image of his father. And they love each other. The father and the son love each other so fully and powerfully that their love is God, the spirit of God. And this God who has been existing forever in love and holiness and goodness and power overflowed in wisdom and strength and goodness and made everything. We didn't know it at the time, but the reason God made everything is because he wanted to give a gift to his son, which is a church. He loved his son so much he wanted to create existence in order to give it to his son as a gift. Excuse me. But everything went terribly wrong in a garden a long time ago when a snake came along and said, why don't you rewrite the stars? And they went for it. And now everybody dies. And we hate each other. And our families fall apart. 
and our churches break down. But God, like the Apostle Paul being rich in mercy, didn't just look at the mess and said, you're done. He reached out in grace and love and sent his son Jesus to become one of us, an actual human being, a man. So if you ever say, no man can tell me what to do, just remember, there is one man who can tell all of us what to do. Amen? And this Jesus lived a perfect life, did everything to please his Father, and even though he deserved in that moment to just be exalted to king of the universe, instead he went to a cross and through torture and rejection and death swallowed up all of the punishment his people would ever deserve for their sin, spilling his blood to death so that his shed blood would be a cleansing, washing fluid that would take wrecked human beings who deserve God's wrath and so cleanse them that they would be spotless and righteous in God's sight. And he was raised from the dead on the third day, destroying the old world that lives by me and lives by want and lives by climbing on each other's faces and lives by survival of the fittest and lives by kill or be killed. He destroyed that in the grave. And he raised to a new life by the power of the Spirit of God. And then on the 40th day or 50th, he went back up to heaven to sit on the throne of heaven and sent the Holy Spirit into the church so that his resurrected power and this new life that is a new life that does not play by the old rules could enter into everyone who looks to Jesus with love-filled faith. That's the reality That's who you are. And this resurrection and this spirit is death to meism. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. It's a loving father come to kill. Every thought that doesn't line up with the children of God being the children of God. Amen? That's what's going on. Woo-hoo! So I'm pumped. I didn't preach for a couple of weeks, so I... They can come out messily. So this is my big call, okay? Thanks for your patience. Thanks for the time. This is my big call this week. This is where we're going to start. I've already not preached four or five messages that was on my heart to preach this morning. You're welcome. I could have done it. I could have. This is where I want us to go. I want us to start looking into the world and seeing, seeing meism in, in action, okay? It's, it's in almost every movie. It's in almost every newscast. It's, it's everywhere, this idea. I want you to start just spotting it. Don't get angry. Don't get proud. I just want you to start noticing it, okay? Because it's like the hidden religion of Canada. And it's, it's in the church because we don't directly deal with it enough. And then I want to invite all of us to 
join with Paul in confronting meism by, by seeking to love his church. Because you know what? Calvary Chapel will give you a lot of reasons to, to not love it. If, if the goal is to find a perfect church that where everybody loves you and treats you better than you treat anybody, you won't find it because the goal is actually to put to death needing that. And instead going, I want to be so filled with the Spirit of Christ that I make my church better in the midst of the mess. That's Christianity. That's, that's the resurrected life. I want to be so full of the truth of God and the love of Jesus and the power of the Spirit that I make my church better. Looking past how they've quote-unquote failed me so that other people are doing better in the Lord than if I never was here. That's what Paul's doing in his thanksgiving for them. That's his whole attitude. Yeah, yeah, you're a mess. You look like you spiritually just stuck your face in the wood chipper. You're one messed up saint of God. And I'm grateful for the grace of Christ that's in you. And I am sure that God is faithful and he can see you through this. That is the Christian heart towards church. Amen? Okay, so we're on a journey. 20 minutes next week. It's going to be great. You're like, boy, how much damage can he do with 20 minutes? Oh, a lot. <laughs> but, I'm, but it's going to be good. So if this is you, if, if, if this is you, um, I, I'm repenting here. I'm with you. I, I really hope you don't uh, feel like I'm talking down to you. I, I'm repenting here. I want to get free from this stuff. I don't want anybody to be going around going, you're stuck in meism and you're stuck in meism. Uh, we, we all are. Let's be super humble and gracious about it. But I just want to invite you. You can stand. You can sit. Um, maybe Greg can get ready with the band. I just want to lead us in a prayer to really believe that the church throughout the entire world, but even here, is where heaven touches down on earth. This is where it's happening. And because perfect heaven is coming down to messy earth, it's going to be a mess. That's normal. But if you want to get past the offense of that and grow into wanting to contribute by the grace of God to the church being more whole and more beautiful and more glorious, why don't you just give your heart to Jesus in this, in this moment for that? I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for your unending grace and that even this morning, no matter where anybody's coming from, you speak these words, grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, you save the worst of sinners. And even 1 Corinthians says you actually seek out the worst people so that when you save them and make, you make them saints, you shame everybody who thinks like that in judgment. You shame everybody who judges and manipulates and 
categorizes by you, you choose the worst to destroy the pride of those who think they're the best. And in saying that, you say, we can come to you with so much confidence, Lord. Father, sometimes we're the worst. Thank you so much for your grace towards us. God, I just want to give myself a fresh. Would you please fill me full of a judgmentalism-free love for the church of Jesus? Would you help me not to be a Christian nitpicker? Would you help me not to delight in seeing the faults and failures of brothers and sisters? But instead, would you give me a Paul-like and give us a Paul-like zeal for the truth to set Christians free? to learn how to really speak the truth with passionate love and to do 1 Corinthians 13 love for each other so that when we're not here, the church is worse off, but when we are here, other people do better in the Lord by your grace. And all God's people said...